0: transform us from the inside out, not behavior modifications so that we fit in with other people, but life change. And when Christ comes within, then behaviors do change, but for his glory, not to earn his favor, but because he has favor upon us. And so we gather to celebrate him. That's what we do. And we open up his word weekly because we want to hear from him. We don't want to hear a speech, a self-help thought. We want to hear from him, and we ask him to transform us. So would you pray with me right now, just to add on to our worship, the Lord would be our teacher now. Would you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, we are grateful. And as our worship team led us, Lord, we are so uh, reminded of your grace, your love, that you yielded to our best interest, Father, when you sent your son to take our punishment upon his own body so that we could be seen as faultless before you for those who would believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for their sake, for our sakes. God, we just ask as we meet in this place, that would you please meet with us? We do not want this meeting to be in vain. We want to celebrate you, to worship you, but we also meet, Lord, so that you would instruct us and guide us and teach us that we may leave to changed people for the sake of the world around us, the sphere of influence that you've given us, Lord, work, home, school, and that we would give you glory by what we think, do, and say. Our expectation, Lord, is that you would do your work, and we are willing and ready for you to do that, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we have the privilege of continuing on in this short series called Grace Stories, and what we've been doing is just looking at various encounters that people had with the grace of God through Jesus Christ, and so this morning, we're continuing on in that, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. And in our text today, we're going to start with the last verse first because it sets up the whole encounter that we're looking at. I trust and hope that you've had a good week in the Lord. I had the privilege yesterday and the day before of hanging out with 130 middle school students. And let me tell you this, middle school is a weird time. But by God's grace, people don't stay in middle school. And uh, I had the privilege of sharing God's word with them once on Friday and twice on Saturday. Please pray for them, a whole bunch of students out of the Cary area, that God would raise them up to be champions of his, that they would shine for him. And we're asking the same thing this morning, that God would raise us up, that he would implant in our hearts his vision for our lives so that we can showcase his glory. And this morning what we're doing is we're looking at a story that simply showcases this principle, that God's grace transforms, transforms us. We're going to look at a very famous story, a story that I've had in my heart since I was a child. And we have some children in here this morning. You probably know this story because mom and dad are faithful to teach you God's word. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And guess what? I've been a pastor for over 10 years, 11 years, and I've never taught the story. I thought for sure I have. I looked through my notes when Scott asked me to preach last week, and I haven't. And so you may know this story, you may not. But I'm just asking that God would transform our hearts through this encounter. So Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And I want to start with verse 10 as we look at this great story. 19 verse 10. And this sets up, this is Christ's mission. And here's the verse. Jesus is speaking here. And he says, For the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, that he is the Messiah, the sent one, the hope of all mankind. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost or what was lost. We sing these incredible songs together when we come together, these songs of um, gratitude to the Lord for his grace in our lives, for sending his son. And why did Jesus come? Why did he choose to humble himself and put on flesh and come? This is his mission, to seek and save the lost. But why would he care about seeking and saving the lost? I just want to park on this just for one minute because he loves and this is the song we sing. This is the song that John led us in this morning. Oh, how he loves us. How did he demonstrate his love toward us? In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let me just say this again because you might not believe it because the accuser likes to tell us we're unlovely. The Lord loves you. And by love, he doesn't mean that he likes what you do for him. By love what he means is he will yield to what is best and wisest and purest for you. He loves you. He loves you. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. He loves you, and he doesn't love you because you're so awesome, by the way, (laughs) because you're so handsome or you're so pretty. He loves you because he's awesome, and it's simply what he does, and he loves to come through, and he loves to overwhelm us with his love if we are willing for him to do that, and even if we aren't, by the way, he still loves us. (laughs) Jesus came to seek and save that which was, what does the text say, answer? The lost. What does lost mean? Literally in the Greek, lost means a condition of being. It's a permanent state of lostness. It means to be ruined, to be destroyed. So Jesus Christ came to seek and save that was lost. and He wasn't looking for a coin. He wasn't looking for his wallet or his watch that he lost. The people is who he's seeking. He's seeking people that are ruined and destroyed, which is everyone before Christ invades their hearts, their lives. God is a seeker and saver of those who are lost. And without the Lord being a seeker and a saver, then there would be no reconciliation, would there? There'd be no forgiveness. There'd be no salvation. No hope. No hope for heaven, for sure, if Jesus doesn't do and accomplish his mission for each one of us. God loves you. This is his mission. And his mission is to seek and save those that are ruined ruined and are destroyed, and are needing of a savior. But the salvation isn't only about, the saving isn't only about a heaven promise someday. And for me, I think that's what I picked up as a child and as a youth, as I thought that salvation was about heaven someday. But salvation is this abundant life, this life that begins now when we are securely fastened to him. We have a new hope, a new peace, a new joy. So eternal life actually begins now, a newness of life. Uh, we use phrases like born again, Or a new creation, that begins now. As soon as you said yes to Jesus, it begins then. For me, 1984. When was it for you? And so today, our story we're looking at, the story of Zacchaeus, this wee little man, as you may know him or remember him from Sunday school days, is a story of a man encountering the grace of Jesus Christ, not just so he can go to heaven someday, but an encounter of a grace that transformed him in those very moments that he met him and then change the trajectory of his life. So let's look at the story together. Are you with me? Okay, I'll take that as a yes to the silence. Here we go. Verse one, chapter 19, verse one. Maybe you remember this story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. I may call him Zac today. Are you comfortable with that? It's okay, you can get over it. <laughs> he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Verse 4, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. The scriptures teach us that Jesus was passing through Jericho. Ironically, Jericho is a crossroad city. People went through there to get to other places. A major city of of, uh, industry and people were coming together uh, to sell goods, buy goods, and it was just a way to get to another place. And Jesus is going through Jericho. He had several encounters in Jericho. So that uh, on this journey this time, though, he's actually making his way then to Jerusalem. And what will happen in Jerusalem? That's where he'll give up his life as a ransom for many. But before he does that, he has a few encounters. A few life-changing, grace-amazing encounters. And today, on this day, as he's traveling through, it's no different. Crowds would be following Jesus. The scriptures say that many people were following him. And the reason why is because word of him had spread that this man from Nazareth has been speaking words that no one's speaking with an authority like no one else is speaking and with power that with no one is speaking and doing these miracles and people want to catch a glimpse. And this day is just like the days previous. People are following not just Christ's disciples but large crowds wanted to get, catch a glimpse for themselves. Is, is this really Jesus the Messiah? Is he really the one He's not who we thought he'd be. Is he really going to bring in the, the promised kingdom? What is he going to do with Rome? All these questions about And people wanted to see for themselves. So a guy named Zacchaeus, like so many others, wanted to see for himself this Jesus of Nazareth. And the scriptures tell us that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now this is the sixth account of a, a mention of tax collector in the book of Luke. And just so you know, by the way, they're all favorable accounts, which is like completely upside down for the people of this time. As we have learned over time here at Southbridge, tax collectors were a despised people. Now, this was a major tax zone in Jericho. And In order for someone to become a tax collector, they had to buy that right, purchase that right from Rome. And usually the people that would do that would be people that are from Israel, Jewish people, people that were God's people. And so now to make money, they bought a practice. They bought a tax collecting booth or a practice or a stand, storefront, and they would tax their own people. And as long as Rome got what they wanted, you could actually ask for any more that you wanted to keep for yourself. Rome didn't care. It wasn't illegal to do this, by the way, but it was terribly immoral. And the scriptures teach us that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, which means this. Money rose up to the top to him from other tax collectors. And other Jewish people that were practicing their faith would view this person, this Jewish person, as totally deplorable, actually unfit to hang around because if you hung around this person who was practicing morality, you could also not go and worship God. And what this would mean then is that Zacchaeus would be viewed as a a traitor. He's paying, he's helping us be oppressed. And this means that we can be confident that Zacchaeus had very few friends of noble character. Most likely his best friends were just his tax collectors that he made money with and trying to make sure he keeps those relationships going to Keep the money coming to us. And the scriptures tell us clearly that he was a, that he was a wealthy man. For Zacchaeus, uh, his life most likely would have been pretty lonely. But his hope and his joy would have been secured to the fact that he can bring in money and hopefully have a good, a good living. And we see here that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he has two problems. Did you catch them? Zacchaeus has two problems. You want to see Jesus? And the first problem is this big crowd. (laughs) Big crowd. And second problem, too small, too short. And so, what does he do? He does something that no other self confident businessman would do in this time. The scripture tells us that he runs and he climbs. Now, uh, obviously, I'm not into running, but if I wanted to see Jesus, I could imagine wanting to run. But then the climbing. I, n- I never even known what a sycamore tree, unless I grew up in the church and knew the story, or unless I watched Indiana State, the home of the sycamores, through Larry Bird making them famous. I think Larry Bird made sycamore trees famous. It's possible. But Zacchaeus before him. So Zacchaeus is a problem. Crowd's too big, that's for sure. We've seen this all throughout the scriptures and Christ's story. And he is too small, so he does. He lessens his pride. That's how excited and how much he wants to see Jesus. And he goes and he degrades himself. He doesn't have friends to impress anyway, does he? He runs and he climbs and he wants to catch a glimpse. Let's look at the next verse, verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. That's onomatopoeia. The word is spelled like how it sounds. Okay. And what did they say to each other? He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus looked up this wealthy man in a tree. And said, Zacchaeus, he's coming through, this crowd's around, his voice rings out, Zacchaeus, hey, come down there, come down from here. In fact, you're only like five feet high. Come come on, I'm looking at you eye level, you're not that high in the tree. Come down here, there you are. I have to come to your house tonight. I have to be with you tonight. And here's the thing to pause on for a second. Jesus is passing through, crowds all around him. He's fed thousands of people miraculously. He's done crazy miracles for people that need help and are calling out to him. This dude is a busy dude. And he looks up in a tree and he says the name of a person that's wanting to see him. He knows Zacchaeus' name. God does. And here's the truth, friends. Here's the truth, loved ones. uh, God still calls people by their names. Zacchaeus, Jason, He's done this all throughout scripture. Simon, Simon, Judas, Thomas, calling people by their names because his grace, when it encounters you, it's personal. It's not a general seeking and saving, it's a personal seeking and saving, individual seeking and saving, that which was ruined or destroyed. What would that be like, you think, for Zacchaeus? I think I would have fallen out of the tree. He knows my name. Personally, when I think about my name being called, uh, usually my name's not called uh, unless it's a friend calling me, a family member, or I've had a couple encounters when my name's being called when it's not good things. Whenever my full name was mentioned growing up, Jason Richard Tovey, it wasn't because of celebration. It usually has something to do with my brother being harmed four years younger than me, I I don't remember. Or sitting in some kind of doctor's office, Jason, Jason Tovey, that, that sends my heart up through my mouth usually. Dennis, the despised people usually. But in this instance, when Jesus Christ and now God the Father through his spirit is still calling names. And it's always for good. And listen, the scriptures are very clear. Psalm 139, the scriptures say that God knows you. He's determined the number of your days. He knows everything about you. Even the thing that you think is most secret from everyone that you wouldn't even tell your best friend because you're so ashamed he knows. And he still calls people by name. And I have a belief that it's possible that even today his spirit could be calling to your heart and calling you by name and saying, I just want you to surrender to me. I've got a vision for your life that's way better than your own. And I make it way better, Lord, than you do. Zacchaeus gets called by name. And what is his response after hearing his name? Maybe falling out of the tree, but the scriptures tell us what he, what he does. The scriptures say that He came down once and welcomed him gladly. This would have been amazing because Jesus didn't just call him by name and say, hey, I want to talk for a little bit. What does the scripture say? It says, I'm coming to stay at your house. In the language used here, the word must there is like a predetermined before the beginning of time must, a divine necessity. It's been appointed, Zacchaeus, and I'm supposed to come to your house. And stay at your house doesn't mean just have dinner. It actually means spend the night. So now you're having a slumber party with God. (laughs) Wild, right? Who do you think's been spending the night at Zacchaeus' house up to this point? What friends do you think he's been hanging out with up to this point, talking all night about the things of the world? I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. But tradition would tell us that not very many people would be hanging out with him. Why would anyone want to hang out with someone that might tax him up to 80 or 90% of their income? No one. And Jesus, who is God, says, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to spend the night, and we're going to talk. And this language is a language of friendship. I want to come to your house because I want to be your friend, Zacchaeus. And how does Zacchaeus respond? The text tells us, with rejoicing. With rejoicing. Now remember, he's alienated, he's isolated, he has no relationships with anybody that matters, with anybody that's good or noble. He's, his only compassion, uh, companions would be people that are just like him. And his response in this moment is one of rejoicing. And it wasn't a, yeah, look at me, suckers, all you can eat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not what it is. This word rejoicing, this word rejoicing, it's an overwhelming, unbelievable joy of an aching heart having a meeting with a person who just might, might care. And so Zacchaeus is joyous. He's, he's rejoicing of this privilege, this, this opportunity. And how does the crowd respond? Did you catch it? They complain and they murmur to each other. And they say, This guy's going to go hang out with a person like that. See, there's two responses. There's the response of Zacchaeus to the grace of Christ, and there's the response to the crowd to the grace of Christ expressed to Zacchaeus. And I just want to park there for a moment and consider putting ourselves in the position of the crowd just for a moment. This is not a popular part of the story. I may have missed it unless the Holy Spirit didn't convict me and confront me. Let's ask this question of ourselves. Who, if God sought after and eventually saved and forgave them and changed their life, would cause you to grumble? See, these people said, this this Jesus, he's going to be, he's he's going to hang out with a sinner. In fact, Jesus did this so often that people, he had a reputation. Did you know this? Just a few chapters previous, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, can we show that? Luke 7, verse 34, this is what was said of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. People people started saying that Jesus had eating problems, that he used to eat just to feel good, that he he used to get wasted, that he was a drunkard, but we know he'd never do that because those things are sin. Being drunk is sin. Eating to feel good is sin. They said he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and here's the truth. The tax collector was the worst of the sinners in this time, at least by the view of the crowd. Back to our story, Zacchaeus responds with joy of the opportunity to have a slumber party with Jesus. And the crowd's upset. See, Jesus, Jesus had said that he didn't come to call the righteous the people that think they're pretty good. He said that he came to call all sinners to repentance. And the worst in this culture and context were the tax collectors. Let's think about the question again. Who if, if God sought after and eventually saved and forgave them and transformed their lives from the inside out, would cause you to grumble? Why would these people complain that Jesus was hanging out with a sinner instead of being excited? Do you know what the answer is? Because they think that Zacchaeus doesn't deserve to have Jesus hang out with them, even though they don't believe he's God. But that's the opposite of grace. (laughs) A a bigger thing is this. They probably think that they deserve to have Jesus hang out with them because they're pretty good. Now let's think about our own lives for a second. Do you have that person in mind that if God saved them and forgave them, that you'd be bothered with God because he did such a thing? Let me tell you this, and let me confront you with what I was confronted with. That's self-righteousness. It's as if we think that we were saved, if you are, because you were pretty good. And that's the opposite of what the scriptures have to teach. These These people are wrong. Their response is wrong. And they didn't get it. See, we have this attitude that implies that we think we deserve grace. or that, And sometimes we get bothered that other people that are rescued and God changes them, these terrible people because they did terrible things. We get upset because when we think that they've been saved, that God is letting them get away with all the naughty things they did. Let me tell you this, and listen really carefully here. No one gets away with their sin. That sin is paid for, and guess who paid for it? Jesus, you got it. God doesn't let people get away with sin. Someone paid for that sin, and that was paid by Jesus Christ. There's no remission of sin without bloodshed. And who shed their blood for that sin? Jesus, you got it. You got it. So when we think, when we get upset that someone else gets saved and God rescues them, maybe they're in jail and they get saved, and you think, you know what? They don't deserve that salvation. You are exactly right. That's good theology. They don't deserve it. And neither do you. And no one got away with anything. Jesus Christ paid for that sin. So this is a smaller point. It's actually an implied point from a negative example of these people that are complaining and when we complain. And here's the thing to write down and consider this week. The first point is this. The grace of Christ transforms our view of others. It's not even really explicitly stated in this story. Did you see it? But the fact that Luke would take time to mention that people grumbled about who Jesus is hanging out with implies that for those that actually encounter Christ's grace and get, I didn't deserve Jesus calling me by name, helps me realize that. Others need to have that same experience, that others need to know him just as I know him. How's that going for you? Would you have rejoiced for Zacchaeus getting to hang out with Jesus, or would you have muttered and murmured, grumble, the motorcycle,. Bum, 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 bum. Shouldn't we want to be a people who rejoice when Jesus pursues and people respond with rejoicing? We should, should, shouldn't we? And at this point in the story, the curtain closes on the day. And now our imaginations run wild with what happened at Zacchaeus' house. And did he call his wife to let her know that Jesus is coming by? Uh, Brenda, put out the best stuff you can. God's coming over. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) this just came to my mind. I need to share this with you. Were you ever allowed to ask in front of your parents if someone could come spend the night? It's an automatic no. Honey, can Jesus come spend the night? Yes. Our minds run rampant and we can assume some things. Here's the things that we can assume. That Jesus Christ said that he came to bring the kingdom. And that Jesus Christ said that he came to bring forgiveness. And he came to implant faith. And he'll even help with unbelief. And that Jesus Christ said there's nothing, Zacchaeus, that you could have done that I can't can't redeem. (laughs) Something happens at this house. Did they have enough room for the disciples? I don't know. Did Peter, James, and John get so angry the fact that they're at the house? Maybe, who knows? Who knows the ripple effect in these hours? But the scripture continues. Look at the next verse, verse eight. Verse eight. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, not just born of Jewish descent, but now has claimed faith as Abraham claimed faith. See, something happens between going to Zach's house and this verse. Something dramatic has just happened and it doesn't tell us what the conversation was, but it doesn't need to. We know that what the conversation was. And what we, can, what we can see is that Jesus most likely talked to him about forgiveness, repentance, the kingdom, and Zach embraces it. By the power of God, he embraces it. By the grace of Jesus Christ, he embraces it. That's obvious. And how is it obvious? How do we come to that? Because of verse nine. Because Jesus says this. Certainly today, salvation has come to this house. Before the beginning of time, God had appointed an encounter. Jesus said, I must stay at your house. It is of the divine appointment that I must hang out with you tonight. And Zacchaeus responds. We, he, he responds as those who have been won over by Christ's grace would respond. Look at verse eight again. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of, the, out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount it says that Zacchaeus makes a confession. Sometimes we read quickly past it. He says this, maybe your translation says this Behold, Lord, he says the word Lord. See, he's confessing that Jesus is what? Lord. And if you confess Jesus as Lord, you are saved. The scriptures are clear. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Do you have these verses in your heart? Can we show these? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. It sounds too simple, doesn't it? It should be believe these things, kind of feel these things, and make sure you do lots of good things and you'll be saved. The Bible never says that. Jesus did the good work to confess with your mouth, to say to others, Jesus is my Lord, and to believe in your heart, Jesus is the Lord, you will be saved. Verse 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Justified is like this um, judicial term. You were once guilty, but now you're justified. Things are cool, things are are good. And it is with your mouth that you confess that you are saved. Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, Don't, don't go past that yet, look, Lord, He didn't say, look, man, or look, passerby, or look, holy person, or look, rabbi. Look, Lord. In that day, when you were in the oppression of the Roman government, you were to say, Caesar is Lord. And say that publicly. And make that clear and known. And certainly a tax collector would, because he works for Rome. But here Zacchaeus says, Jesus is my Lord. Overnight or in moments, Zac is being transformed and what is so amazing to me is in just the chapter earlier jesus had said that it's impossible for rich men to give up their riches on their own he just says he just said this for those that are reading the book of luke he just he's just noted as saying this he said it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of god in fact there was another person that had great wealth that asked what must i do to go to heaven and jesus kind of puts his finger on this guy's heart stuff and says why don't you give your stuff away now, giving this stuff away doesn't mean you're going to heaven. But Jesus is touching on this heart stuff. And then what happens with that guy? Do you remember? He goes away sad. You got it. And now here's Zacchaeus, another wealthy man, a despised man, a lonely man most likely. And something, something changes. Jesus says that with a person by themselves, these things are impossible. This transformation for a rich man is impossible. But then Jesus says this. Things that are impossible, men are possible with God. <laughs> Because he loves to do the impossible. He loves to do the improbable. The thing that you think he can't do, the reason why you might think you can't believe the miracles he accomplished because they're impossible, right? But God can do them. He spoke everything out of nothing. Impossible. Yeah, but he loves to do it. Jesus says it's possible with God. God. What was impossible for Zacchaeus was made possible because Zacchaeus was sought and saved by a sovereign Lord. And this salvation doesn't just, isn't just about heaven, right? It's about a grace gift that transforms now. True righteousness results in a transformation. Every time, every time. If allowed, it will transform the very core of your most dominant areas of sin. And what were Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus' most dominant areas of sin, most notable in Scripture? Money stuff, right? So for this guy it was money, for someone else it might be anger. for someone else it's immorality. But when true salvation comes, real transformation always follows, immediately and thereafter. All the way up until we're in heaven. It's the process of sanctification, we're being sanctified by God's Holy Spirit, pruning us and working us and bringing us through the, the, the flames, the trials and all these things, life experiences, shaping us and transforming us. Jesus came to seek and save sinners and then to totally transform them. And the truth is this that Jesus loves people as they are, and he loves them enough not to leave them that way. He loves you as you are. And people like to bank on that because what they want to hope to is that, that no change has to take place. They can still call the shots. Jesus loves you as you are. And when you surrender your life to him as the Lord of your life, he won't leave you that way. That's his promise. So here's the second point for those of you who like to take notes. The first point was that God's grace, the grace of Christ, changes our view of others. The last point really is that the grace of Christ transforms our vision for ourselves, the vision for ourselves. What was Zacchaeus' vision for his life up to this point? It's got to be something related to making as much money as possible, even if no one likes me. (laughs) Sounds miserable, although we do like money. The grace of Christ transforms the vision of our lives. Because our vision has now become, God, whatever you want to do, I'll do it. That's what happens. When you say yes to Jesus Christ as your Savior, the grace of Christ transforms the vision of your life. And the only vision you have for your life is this. Jesus, I'll do whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it. Help me. Help me do it. And when you confront me when I haven't been doing that, I will confess, I will repent, and I'll get back on track with you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. See, this is different than simply not getting to do what we want because of circumstances. When I was in elementary school, I had this idea that I wanted to be a pro baseball player. I played for the Dodgers. Not LA Dodgers. It was in Jackson Christian School, Intermarrow League. I didn't know if you were confused. And um, in my first year of t-ball, I played catcher, which is an interesting position in t-ball since there's no pitching. I feel like you're judging me. But eventually, in the minors, which was uh, third and fourth grade, uh, I played left, left field, and then eventually I moved to pitcher. And my problem with baseball, which was the vision of my life in elementary, was um, the problem of going from the dugout to the batter's box, I would cry, and then during the um, bat, I would cry, and then when I struck out walking back, I would cry. I don't see that a lot in pro baseball. You may. I didn't want to get hit. You can't be afraid of the ball in pro baseball. And I, didn't, I was so afraid that the ball was going to hit me. So afraid. One year, a guy said, we did all the stats for the year. This kid was two grades ahead of me, and I was the lowest grade of this division. He said, you had 127 strikeouts. And I thought, he was talking about me pitching because I pitched a couple innings, but I didn't pitch enough innings to get 127 strikeouts. That's how many times I struck out that year. In eight games, something like that. I don't know. When we say that Christ transforms the vision of our lives, it's not that we don't get to do what we want to do because circumstances change some things, like I didn't have the ability to play baseball. What we mean, what the scriptures seem to indicate, and what Jesus makes clear with his life is that I take over your life, and what used to be what you're most passionate about changes, and that you want to make, have God glorified through that. See, I think there are people that have a vision to play baseball, but they play baseball so that God can get a lot of glory out of it. I think there are people that have a vision to be mothers, and they become mothers, but it wasn't so they can get their identity out of being a mother. They want to be a mother because they want Jesus to be seen through it. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus does. And when you live life like that, when you experience that, when you experience that you're on pace with Christ, and you're doing your life for his glory, you're going to feel like you're winning. Because no one can take anything away from you that way. If the circumstances change, it doesn't matter because your vision's the same. I want to make Jesus known. I want Jesus' grace, the grace of Christ to be seen through me to other people. That's success. So how is Zacchaeus' transformation obvious? How, is his, how did the vision for his life change so quickly and immediately? What did he do to showcase that? He realizes that what his life was all about before Christ is now not worth that. And let me just say this. When you truly encounter the grace of Jesus, you realize what is indeed sinful and wicked in your life, and you don't want to do that anymore. You don't want to continue sinning because something happens deep in you. You change. And when confronted with your sin by the Holy Spirit or by a friend who's a Christian brother or sister in life, they confront you because they love you, not because they want to make you feel smaller like an idiot. They're doing it because they love you. The Christian that's experienced the grace of God desires change and will repent and will turn and say, God, what do you want to do with my life? I'll what do whatever you ever want me to do. And they start following the path of Jesus. What does Zacchaeus do? He starts providing restitution for his past. This would have been expected, though, according to the law. I don't know if you knew this or not. In Exodus chapter 22, the law states that if you rob someone with violence and destruction, a fourfold response was, was required. And so Zacchaeus went to the max. Even if he didn't really rob anybody with his destruction or rob anyone with violence, he put that penalty upon himself. And so he gave four times the amount to anyone that he may have cheated, and he knows that he's cheated people. And then what does he say? He says, after giving himself this highest penalty, he said he'd give half of his possessions to the poor. You might ask, why couldn't he give all of his possessions to the poor? Because he probably just paid off other people 400% of what he took from them. He didn't have, a, he didn't have the rest to give, so he gave half of all to the poor, whoever needed it, and half to people that he was making restitution with. And just so you know, there wasn't any law that said you had to give half of your possessions to the poor. This just came from a changed heart. I think this was the Holy Spirit's idea, or God's idea for him. It came to his mind. It never would have been in his mind two weeks previous. God changed his vision. The very thing that Zacchaeus lived for, he is now giving up. Isn't this amazing? He doesn't do this to gain God's favor or salvation, by the way. That would be a misunderstanding of scriptures and a misunderstanding of salvation. He's not paying penance. Uh, penance is the false teaching that you need to pay God back and others back so you can be forgiven. That's not how God works. Because grace is free. It costs Christ his life, but it's given freely to you. It's not penance. penance God is not independence. Restitution is saying, I'm going to do the right thing. I think the Lord's for that. I think the Lord's for that. Zach is doing this because he has received the grace and forgiveness of Christ. He's simply now doing the right thing. I saw a TV interview recently of a woman who used to be involved in pornographic filming. And her, she was just mistreated. She gave up her body because she wanted to be loved. She was looking for love. And there was a lot of abuse and drug abuse and all these things. But she needed the money to keep a livelihood going. And then God invaded her heart through the grace of Jesus Christ. And guess what she does now? She goes and she's trying to rescue other women that are in that same venue. Choosing, using the platform from being in that venue in the past to now trying to seek and save those who are lost. <laughs> using the venue that she knows what it looks like to try to earn love, knowing that's already been given to her through Jesus Christ, and now she's trying to help, help, help other people, other ladies, know that Christ loves them. Isn't that amazing? For Zacchaeus, salvation turned an essentially greedy man into a generous, gracious man, turned the passion of his life into getting to giving. Zacchaeus received the grace of God. That is the truth. And then he transformed into this agent of God's grace. And transformation is exactly what the Lord is into. There's a scripture in the New Testament written by a guy that used to kill Christians to a church he helped plant that was really struggling and needed encouragement. It's found in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Can I look at it? And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. This is talking to Christians. This is what Christians can claim for their lives. They don't have to wear wear a veil over their face like Moses did when he was embarrassed that the the glory was fading a bit. We are unveiled. We are real with the world around us because Jesus Christ is our light in our life. And he's transforming us into people like him, that live like him and believe and act and do as he does with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I can't tell you how often I've heard from people, Christians and non-Christians, pastors, who say things like this, people don't change. That person's never going to change. You know what? There are some people that won't change. That's true. But you can't make a statement about all people. In fact, it's really disheartening when pastors say it, because they're actually in the life change business, aren't they? (laughs) They just undercut the vision statement of selfridge is this connecting people to Jesus for life change because Jesus can change lives. But if you also simultaneously believe that people never change, then you're out. Terrible vision statement, then you're gonna fail. However, what is impossible with us, what is impossible with people, is possible with the Lord. And when we say stuff like this, people don't change. What we're saying is that God's not big enough to change people. And what we're saying then is that we're God. But did he change you? As a changed person, do you actually still say people don't change? Then how did you change? Because you tried real hard? Transformation will happen as someone accepts and lives in and walks daily in the grace of the Lord. That is the truth of God. And we want to shot call on other people and rank other people and decide for other people that they cannot be changed. What we're saying then is not, not only impossible with people, it's also impossible with God. And we're judging God. Some people wondered, well, what happened with Zacchaeus? Did this stick? Because we know that some people do good things, and then they fall away or something. Well, history, church history tells us this. It's not in the scripture. Church historians tell us that early church father Clement, the bishop of Alexandria, in one of his sermons goes on to talk about how Zacchaeus actually went on to become the bishop or a pastor in Caesarea. And if it's indeed bishop, it might have been that he was a pastor over pastors. Chief tax collector, tax collector over tax collectors, now pastor over pastors. And for him to have that position means that he continued on to live generously. (laughs) I think it took. Isn't that amazing? Possibly appointed by Peter himself. He was changed. And as Christians, who we were is not who we are. And by the grace of God in the future, not who we will be. I want to share a story with you from a friend here at Southbridge and then I'll close our time in prayer.
1: My parents had us in church from the very beginning and um, I was saved when I was about 10 years old and baptized and fully understood what that meant. I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart and he was not a believer and uh, he joined the Navy. Um, and so we moved, he was on a submarine, so we moved to the Seattle area. When he was home, he would cheat on me, and he'd leave and I'd get a $900 phone bill, and it's where he was calling 1-900 numbers, he was calling girls that he'd met when he pulled port, um, and it really started really deteriorating my self-esteem, so I finally left. Uh, By that time, I was, a mess you know i would just think oh you know i'm ugly i'm gross i'm stupid i'm fat i'm disgusting i'm not a nice person nobody loves me so i was completely medicating myself through alcohol and drugs so i got a big promotion i thought okay a new start i'm going to phoenix this is a big deal one of the guys that i went out with I really liked him. We liked the same music. We enjoyed the same things. And um, one night he said, do you want to do drugs and stay up all night? And I said, sure. And we did meth together, and I became completely addicted. Um, Within the first four months of me even trying methamphetamines, I had lost my job, my apartment. So of course, my boyfriend let me move in with him and things got completely out of control we were doing drugs all day every day he had lost his job at that point um and i was pulling in um about 700 dollars a week on unemployment we were just blowing it on meth and then when the money ran out we started stealing and we started staying in motels and fighting and he would it, things would get so violent and he would just beat me to, to a bloody pulp, uh, I'd say four days out of the week. I was still there, I could feel myself in there. I was just trapped by addiction. And so I knew that you're not supposed to let a man hit you. Max husband never hit me. I knew I would have never allowed that, but my my boyfriend had the drugs. He put cigarette out on me and I fell down because it surprised me and he put it, on my, put it out on my face. And, um, it, and I, I was trying to get away and, I, and brush it away and I fell to the ground and he kicked me between my legs with a steel-toed boots. And it was the worst pain I'd ever felt. I couldn't walk and the police were called and um, when they were hauling him away, he said, I'm, I'm gonna kill you, I will be back and I will kill you. And when I remember laying in that bed, and I couldn't walk, and I was like I said, I was starting to get lucid, and it was like God was telling me, if you don't get out, you're never gonna get out. He's, he's gonna kill you, and if he doesn't kill you, something else will. And um, so I called my mom, and. I said I need to get out of here. I I got on the off the plane. I had one dollar and I gave it to my mom. I said, "This is all I got. You yeah, know, I need your help." And the next morning, I woke up and um, she'd taken my cell phone. The I didn't have access to a computer. She said, "Here are the rules." She made me go to therapy. She made me go to family therapy. She made me go to N.A. meetings. This is really encouraging. (laughs) Come on. But soon this stuff started really clicking because they talk about God. And that was one thing I always knew. And my God is Jesus. And my God says that it's all wiped away clean. And it is all about God's grace. That I'm here. It's God's grace that that my family has shown me my little sister she and I have always been really really close our relationship got a lot closer she went to meetings with me went to counseling together Um, she really wanted to help me but it wasn't until Griff was born that I realized what I had gotten sober for was to see the beautiful child that she gave me, you know, that gift too, and she lets me be around him anytime I want. Um, and the beauty of it is that Griff doesn't know who I was, he doesn't know what I've done, he just knows that I love him and I'm always there, and um, you know. It's just so pure, and I would have missed out on that if I wouldn't have left, if I wouldn't have listened to God that day when He said, you've got to get out. I have plans for you. This isn't what I want for you. I wanna be a good, godly woman for Him. I want Him to, to know that no matter what, I got, received God's grace. My family showed me God's grace, and he'll always get that from me.
0: So so God's into transformation, and he's still doing it, and he's still calling people by name. When things are great or things are terrible, he's still calling, and he may be calling you, Let's pray. And if you just bow your heads, I just want to ask you a few questions for you to think about you. I want to thank Amy for sharing her story. I'm so proud of her. And I want to thank Dave Cook for helping capture a glimpse of her story, my friend. Here's some things for you to think about. How does God want to transform you? Has he been, is there something that he's putting his finger in your heart saying, I want, I want to redeem this? Do you know what that is? What will you say to him in response? How has God transformed you in the past? Have you ever told anybody about that and made him known and, and shared his, glo- his glory, his grace with someone else through what he's done for you? Maybe there's someone you're supposed to share your story with and this week or this day is the day to do that. Will you do it? And last, the last question is really in reference to the first point that God will, God's grace changes our view of others when we've encountered God's grace. If There's someone in your life that you've decided isn't changed but they have said God has changed them And you've acted as a judge over them, and you're supposed to forgive them for being judgmental, and you're supposed to reconcile with them. Will you do it? Will you obey the Lord in that way? Pray with me, Lord. For this morning, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word, Lord. I am so thankful that you walked to that city on the way to Jerusalem, and called Zacchaeus by name—a real person, a real city. And you said you wanted to be friends with him and that he changed. You are, able, you are able to do the impossible. And we praise you and love you for it. Thank you, Lord, for calling us by name. I know so many here that have been sought after and saved by you and, and experienced transformation. Lord, thank you. We say thank you collectively to you for your love. Lord, for this morning, I pray for anyone that needs to surrender their lives to you, that they would believe in their heart that you died and rose again and confess with their mouth to someone else that you are the Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see others as you do, as we are supposed to be grace agents, that we would know that there's hope for change in others, even if they are terrible in their life, Lord, that we know that you provide a hope that they would change, Lord, that we'd pray to the end that we wouldn't give up on anybody because you never gave up on us. And God, I pray that we we would do an evaluation of our lives and Seek to see if the vision of our lives is simply wanting to glorify you, Lord. If it's not, would you change us and redirect our hearts? Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for this morning. Go before each one of us, Lord, and let us shine for you by your grace. We believe in you. Help us with our unbelief. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and saving name. Amen. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.